Well, good morning, Valley Bible Church. I just want to look out and kind of see your faces a little bit this morning. Good to see all of you. Good to be here with you again. And man, just been keeping this service in prayer. And uh, thank you so much for all of your prayer and support and love and friendships. And it's good to see you. I got somebody hugged me so hard a little while ago, gave me a kiss on the cheek and knocked the microphone right off my big head. And so it's good to be loved and to be here again today with you. So, well, one year before I was born, and the bad thing about this is you're going to figure out how old I am, but one year before I was born and one year before Valley Bible Church was founded, so we're talking about what year? 1970. A film that's been considered one of the most 10 romantic movies of all time, as well as one of the highest grossing films in U.S. history was released. And don't ask me how they measure that, but I read this. The classic movie starred Ryan O'Neill and Ally McGraw and is often remembered for one of its very famous lines, love means never having to say you're sorry. Anyone here remember the name of that movie? The Love Story. All right, we got some trivia and movie buffs out here. That's good. Before I move on, let me just say this. Husbands, uh, that's a great line for a movie, but don't try that in your marriage, okay? <laughs> just, just take my word for it. If you're one of the many who have seen this movie, you may be aware that parts of this picture were actually filmed on site at Harvard, and that one of the key buildings referred to in the movie as Barrett Hall is actually a very special and prominent structure and landmark that's alive and well today on the Harvard campus. It's a beautiful building known as Emerson Hall. Not long ago, I ran across an article written by a man who was a Harvard alumnus, now minister, a man named Mark D. Roberts. I know nothing about the man's theology. Don't go read his books just because you hear me say this necessarily. He earned his Ph.D. at the prestigious university, and the article that he wrote that I really appreciated, and I'm going to share some of it with you today, was entitled, Harvard Ironies, The Irony of All Ironies. In it, he wrote it about his, ti about, uh, his time as a student there, and he discussed some of what happens on any given day inside those sacred walls, as it were, of Emerson Hall at Harvard. And he explains this, as an undergraduate concentrating in philosophy, I was required to take a few courses in the history of philosophy, logic, and philosophy of language. And for the most part, my fellow students and I were taught this, and I want you to hear this, that truth was merely a human construct. And that God was basically irrelevant to human thought. One of my professors actually acknowledged that the existence of God was 50% probable. I expect the Lord was glad to hear that. This philosophy faculty at Harvard apparently did not uphold the vision of the original Harvard seal, literally the seal that would be stamped on diplomas that said, Veritas Christo et Ecclesiae, truth for Christ and the church. The fact that the great Harvard philosophers inhabited Emerson Hall struck me as extraordinarily ironic, but not only because the building had co-starred in the movie Love Story, 
Rather, the irony of ironies had to do with what was engraved in stone. And if, if we're able, we should have a slide coming up soon. On the outside of Emerson Hall, there in giant letters on the outside of Emerson Hall, on the campus of Harvard, was a portion of Psalm 8, which reads, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Yet inside the hallowed walls of Emerson Hall, some of the finest minds of the 20th century reversed that order. God was neglected or denied to exist by the greatness and power of contemporary philosophy. Had Emerson Hall been built in the 70s and in the years since, it might well have been inscribed, he wrote, with, What is God that thou art mindful of him? Or perhaps man is all that we have to be mindful of. My guess is that the statement of the ancient Greek philosopher Protagoras would have prevailed, man is the measure of all things. In fact, that very statement had been suggested in the inscription, but Harvard president C.E. Wilson chose, excuse me, C.W. Eliot chose the psalm text instead. The author goes on to write, and I want you to hear this with me this morning. It's almost too easy to laugh at the irony of Emerson Hall with its well-educated atheist inhabitants. But before we chuckle too hard, we ought to examine our own lives. Do I live as if it's a wonder that God is mindful of me? Or do I live as if I were the measure of all things? Those are some great questions to ask, aren't they? This morning, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the passage of Scripture that this portion of the, the Emerson Hall came from here. It's Psalm 8. Psalm 8 in your Bibles. Psalm 8 is a psalm of praise. And if you were to read through the psalms, beginning with the first psalm, you'd find out that there are five psalms prior to Psalm 8. Psalms 3 through 7 that are marked considerably by heavy cries to God. Pleas for deliverance and gut-wrenching lament. Hearts crying out, being poured out to God. And as Psalm 8 opens, a shift begins to occur in the Psalms. And it begins to be steered toward praise. Steered towards reflection upon God's incomparable greatness and his care for us. If you're able and willing, I've done this for a while now as I've seen some other pastors do this. I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we read God's word. If you're not able to, please don't feel bad, but this is just one way I like to visibly acknowledge that when the Bible speaks, who speaks? God speaks. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. These are his words that I'm about to read to you now. And I want to say before we get into Psalm 8, I'm really going to concentrate this morning on verses 1 through 4, but I'm going to read the entire psalm to you. So just keep that in mind. We're going to concentrate on verses 1 through 4. But here's the entire psalm as it's written in God's Word. Psalm 8. How majestic is your name 
to the choir master according to the gittith. And apparently the gittith was some sort of guitar-like harp is what we can understand it to be. God's word tells us that it was a psalm of David. The psalmist says in verse 1, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the angels, or the, excuse me, the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. And I want to invite you as a congregation to once again read with me here what he repeats and wants to emphasize in this passage. Verse 9, are you ready? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You may be seated. One of the things that I love most about this psalm is that out of the gate, from the second it starts, David gives us some clues about what he wants to make abundantly clear. In short, it's his ultimate intention in writing Psalm 8 to proclaim that no one but God, God and no one but God, is incomparably great. For people like you and I who live in a world where athletes, musicians, actors, and television shows are almost worshipped. Not only that, but even Kellogg's Frosted Flakes are called what? Great, right? If, Maybe I'm just older than half the people here. I don't know, but I remember that. You see, we've been raised to think that these sort of people and these things are great, and it becomes way too easy for us to forget what incomparable greatness truly looks like. So in verse 1, David reminds us, and I appreciate this. I need to be reminded. You're like me, and you need to be reminded something that we all know in our heads, but we need to keep in the forefront of our minds that no one but God is incomparably great. Verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. In all the earth you have set your glory above the heavens. We're only four words in the English text into this passage, and he's already referred to our God as Lord. How many times? Not once, but twice. If you look carefully, and I'm sure you've seen this before or you've had it explained here many times at the church, but the very first word there for Lord is written all in caps, right? While the second is not. That's because there are two different words in the, in the original language, but both are being used here to refer to God. The first that you see capitalized in all caps is the personal, very proper name of the God of the Bible. And sometimes you hear the word Yahweh, right? Yod, hey, vav, hey, or wow, hey, depending on how you pronounce it. The, the name for God. Very special name. And he used this name when 
He revealed himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. Do you all remember that? Basically, when Moses says to God, okay, God, I understand you want me to go to your people to lead them out of Egypt and to tell them that the God of your fathers sent me or sent you. But what if, uh, God, they ask what your name is? (laughs) What am I supposed to, to say to them? What should be my response? And God replied to Moses, tell them I am has sent you. It's the idea of I am who I am or I am that I am. It's used 5,321 times for anyone who's counting in the Old Testament. And it's got this emphasis. It's upon God as being the self-existent one. Our God is the uncaused cause. It implies his eternality, that he's always been, that he always will be, that he's autonomous, that he's independent. Our God is in a category all by himself. And at the same time, it's also the name used very often of God within the context of his special covenant relationship with his people, the nation of Israel. And so there's a sense in which this very same name communicates a relational nature to it or a nearness. Then the second word for our Lord that he used, it's not capitalized. And you notice he says our Lord. It's personal. He's not just the Lord. If you're here today and you know him, he's your Lord, right? It's not capitalized. And it literally means this. Master is essentially what it means. It's always used of God when this word occurs in Scripture as the one with absolute authority and power. Absolute authority and power. This very same word is used in Psalm 110, verse 1, and I love this. This is just another little side note here in a a messianic psalm, a psalm that's referring to Jesus in part of it. When David says, the Lord, all caps, says to my Lord, this word always used of God, and we understand to be referring to Christ, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Isn't that awesome? Always used of God. And here in the Old Testament, before we even get to the New Testament, here it is being used to refer to Messiah. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You hang around the church long enough and you will sing things and say things that just become part of the vocabulary and you don't always even know what they mean, let's be honest. Majestic, oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The Hebrew word majestic is one that communicates this. A display of power that is awe-inspiring to the point that it can even be intimidating. And I want to ask you this to think with me for a moment. Where has God most clearly revealed his magnificence to everyone Where has he set forth a display of power that is absolutely awe-inspiring? And I want to suggest to you this, and I think we see this as as verses 3 and 4 begin to happen, that David has in mind here that he's done this in spades through the world that he's created and through the awe-inspiring universe that you and I are a part of. 
a world and universe that according to the very same author who wrote this psalm in Psalm 19 is constantly and emphatically 24 hours a day, seven days a week, testifying of who God is and what he's like, saying that there's a God, that he's powerful, that he's a creator. David wrote that the heavens declare the glory of God and that the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day by day they pour forth speech and he goes on to explain there is no time when they're not speaking and they're telling everyone he's alive. There is a God. He's powerful. What a privilege to be able to know him if you know him today. The creator God. Sometimes we sit at our dining room table in my home and I'll say to my little ones and my three and five-year-olds are not here today, tell me something that you love about God. And one of the things they say, and I don't even correct them because I love it so much, he's creatiful. <laughs> he's the creator, isn't it? And, and all that he's created is beautiful. <laughs> so you might as well just put him into new words, right? And go ahead, use it of God. He's creatiful. The heavens declare his glory. They're constantly testifying of all that he's done and that there is no God like him. And that, and that message is, is preached throughout the world to everyone. To everyone, whether they want to believe or not. O oh Lord, O oh Lord, how majestic is your name. In all the earth you have set your glory above the heavens. And in doing so, God's made it emphatically, emphatically clear that he exists, that he's powerful, and that according to Paul in Romans chapter 1, the implications of that clear declaration of who he is to all of mankind is that man has no excuse for rejecting him. There is no one that will stand before God one day and say, you know what, Lord, there just was not enough evidence that you exist." That's why when you study theology, it's referred to as general revelation in the sense that it's, it's made known to everyone. The scope of who this message goes out to is it's all. And I love this because I think about it at times, and you and I, almost everybody here in this room probably, were able to look up into the skies at night and to see the work that God has done, to see his creation all around us. But I thought, what if I couldn't see? What if I couldn't see, then what? And I think about it, and it's like all you have to do is walk outside, and you can feel something. You can feel the warmth of the sun on your, on your arm, can't you, or on your skin. And you could think to yourself, uh, where, is it, where, where is this warmth coming from? Whether I can see or not. I can, and then somebody explains to you, well, there's this enormous star that's hanging in the sky, and it kind of burns really a lot. And it sends its sun perfectly. And by the way, the earth's uh, the exact distance that it needs to be. If it was any closer, you'd burn up. If it was any farther away, you would freeze. That, that, that sun that's giving you warmth, how did it get there? There must be someone who could have put it there. There must have been someone who was there before it was there. I can remember not too long ago sitting down with a man that in the community that I live in right now, everybody there knows who this guy is, very prominently involved in the community, very prominently involved in the things that the city does, and we sat down at lunch, the man, um, very clearly, and we, we have a great relationship, 
very clearly has expressed that he does not believe there's a God, and yet we still connect around sports, and we, we talk and, 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 and enjoy each other. And, and, the, and the church, when we were there, had done some things to help in the community, and we had built this relationship. And we sat down at this little Italian restaurant one day, and I, I just said to him, I, I know that you're not about these sort of things, but would you mind if I just for a moment, told you what real Christianity is really all about, because I know the, the culture thinks it's so many different things. Can I tell you what's at, at the heart of it? And, you know, kind of hard to say no to. I'm, not, I'm kind of a nice guy. He probably felt bad and obligated to, to listen to some degree. And we were, we were in one of those restaurants, if you've ever been there, when they have a tablecloth that's, that's just paper, and the waitress come out and write, with a, writes her name with a crayon on there, or the waiter does. And so I picked up this little crayon, and I, the crayon, and I, and I just said, I want to tell you something, that, that Christianity, and I just wrote down, and I've seen this shared before different ways. I wrote down the words, do and the word's done, if you've ever seen this. And I said, everyone's going to tell you that being a Christian about, is about everything that you do. If you do the right things, if you try hard enough, if you work hard enough, if you give this amount of money, if you attend church this many times, then God's going to let you into heaven. But I want to just tell you, and I'm positive about this, that being a Christian really means that you understand it's not about what you can do in order to earn God's favor, but it's about what Jesus Christ has done for you. And, and feel free, if you ever want to use, it's a really helpful little thing. You can then take them to passages like Ephesians 2 and 9. The Bible says that it's by grace we've been saved, through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, so that no one should boast, right? And he saved us, not on the basis of deeds we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, the word of God tells us. So I got to share this with this man, and I'm not saying this to, like, make me look cool, or, or I, I am scared to do stuff like that, just like you guys are at times. But I'll tell you what happened is that as I shared this, and we were talking about the things of God, I'll never forget what he said. He said this, well, I got to tell you sometimes that there are times when I've been backpacking, where I've been up in the mountains, and I've looked and I've seen things. And he, he didn't even finish what he was trying to say, but I can tell you where he was going. And I just so happened to be preaching the very next week, Psalm 19. And I told him, let me tell you what's going on there from what God's word says. God is declaring to you through his creation that he's real, that he's powerful. And I tell you what, God makes some things about himself known through creation, through his created world, but there are other things that only become to, known to people through his special revelation, through his written word, and God's entrusted us with the privilege of being able to take that word out to people. Right. You see, people can come to know that there's a God, whether or not you ever open your mouth, but they won't understand what Christ came to do and what he accomplished for them on the cross in his death, burial, and resurrection unless someone will tell them. And I just want to tell you, be people who are willing to speak it. And you know what? I wish I could say that man knelt down right there in that Italian restaurant right beside the rolls and pasta and gave his life to Jesus, and he didn't. But he listened and he heard the gospel that day. And I ended it by just saying this. Can I, can I just ask you, I know that you probably aren't interested more now than what I've said or hearing what I said, but if there ever comes a time in your life where you'd like to hear more about this God, I would love it 
if I'd be the person that you'd talk to. If you'd pick up a phone or send me an email and ask me to talk to you about him. You see what he understood even though he rejected God. And Paul says in Romans 1 that man has suppressed the truth very often that God reveals about himself and is made so clear. But it's just evidence that he understood God was speaking. It had to point somewhere. Oh Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. And David goes on to say in verse 2, Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. What an interesting little verse. What I believe the psalmist has in mind here, and I love it, is it, it, it's very simplest. It's communicating this, that our enormous, incomparably great God often chooses to use weak people to accomplish his ultimate purposes through. Even purposes that at times might include something as hard to imagine as taking down his enemies. Now, if anyone would ever know this to be true, the psalmist author would, wouldn't it? David would understand this. After all, God's word tells us that David, when he was just a youth and he still wasn't even strong enough to fight, in a sense, with a warrior's armor and sword, with tremendous accuracy and great faith, hurled a stone from a slingshot that dropped a giant to the ground like a bad habit, right? Just dropped him right there. And God did it in such a way that the nation of Israel didn't go, man, did you see the biceps on David? Did you check him out? But all the supposed strong people were running and hiding. They didn't want anything to do with this big Philistine, right? And here comes a boy with tremendous faith or a young man who understands who his God is. And God accomplished something incredibly special through him, just like he wants to accomplish through all the weak people in the room. And I'm sorry if I just offended you, but I just, I just uh, conceded to it years ago. I'm a weak person. I'm a weak person, but our God is not. <laughs> in fact, it was in 1997, in the spring of 97, in the Family Life Center, as Pastor Phil preached, that God first convinced me that he was calling me to go into ministry. And Larry alluded to being called to God here. And I can remember on that night as he preached a message. It was called The People God Ministers Through. And I believe it was out of 2 Corinthians 4 that he was focusing. That he was talking about excellence in ministry and doing ministry well. And at that time in my life, a lot of people were saying to me, you should go into youth ministry or you should be a pastor or you should do this. And all I could remember was all the things that I didn't do very well. All the reasons that it wouldn't be right for me to go. One of the main things was, and you, it probably surprises you hearing me talk your ear off today, but I was terrified to speak in front of people. I can remember sitting on a stool teaching junior hires because I was afraid to stand up in front of them. I can remember dropping out of the only speech class that I ever took in college, the only real one, until I got into a speech class where they actually let me pass the class without having to speak. Can you believe that? 
we can, that's a whole nother conversation, but, it, but it's true. And that night in 1997, as I was telling myself, you don't speak well enough. You don't do this, you don't do that. Pastor was speaking about excellence and how it's accomplished in ministry. And he said this, he said that excellence in ministry is not accomplished through the elimination of human inadequacy, but instead through the divine empowerment of inadequate people. I will never forget that sentence as long as I live because I can remember telling God that day, there's no more excuses. There's no reason for me to say, I don't do this well enough and I don't do that well enough. It's only a matter of saying, God, do you really want me to? And will you do what I can't do, what I'm unable to do? You see, God works and is chosen to work and always will work through weak, weak people. Maybe the only question is, are you too self-sufficient for God to use? See, when that happens, God and God alone receives the glory for it. They can't point to, as I said a moment ago, David's biceps. They can't point to, as Larry was kind enough to say, the, the degrees I have or whatever. And believe me, I don't impress myself. I, I look at the Hebrew stuff this day and it still confuses me. And that's after years of seminary training and things. When God works through weak people and mighty God victories are won, God alone is the one who receives the glory for it. Thankfully that the man God used to write this psalm was well acquainted not only with his weakness, but also with how incomparably great his God was. And that's what he gets to in verses 3 through 4 in a way that's really special. I love these verses, and I want to challenge you today to have the type of mindset to cultivate what we're going to call a Psalm 8, 3 through 4 mindset that keeps you constantly thinking, God, you're incredible. You're magnificent. I'm not. But you care for me. I matter to you. Not because of all the stuff I've done and because I measure out a little more holy than, than the next guy, but in spite of all the things I've done. When you really get this right, uh, God knows you and I on our worst days. Nobody, maybe nobody else sitting in this church today does, or, or your spouse might if they're sitting next to you. But God knows us on our worst days, and he loves us in spite of it. And considering who he is, it's an incredible thought. And the psalmist writes, when I look at the heavens, verse 3, the work of your fingers that he refers to it as, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that thou art mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You see, in creation, in Genesis chapter 1, our unfathomably powerful God, all he had to do was speak and vast, immeasurable galaxies and solar systems burst into existence according to God's word. And it happened in a way that was effortless for him. That's why David refers to it as the work of your fingers. I think of all the times I sit at the table and my kids are playing Play-Doh. Daddy, would you make a snake for me? Yeah, you know, you roll it out and whatever. You just 
fashioning stuff with your fingers. And it was so effortless to God to, to create the universe that the psalmist speaks of it this way. And by the way, the Bible says that God is spirit. You know, he doesn't exactly have hands and fingers, but it speaks of him in this way. And if you ever need this word when you're playing Scrabble, it's called an anthropomorphism in the Bible. When God is spoken of in human ways so that we can see the picture is what it comes down to, right? They're the work of his fingers. In his work, The Vitality of Worship, Robert Davidson wrote, We may have left our footprints on the moon, but the further we probe through radio telescope and orbiting satellite, the more awesome becomes the immensity of space in the whirling galaxies. It's hard to even wrap your mind around it when you look up into a beautiful clear sky at night and what I did was I found a little video, and it's really brief, but I think it's going to be helpful. And what I want you to do is just for a moment, try to enter into what's expressed in this video. It's a video by Francis Chan. Lord willing, it works. AV team, it's your time right now. See if you can do this for me. It's called The Awe Factor of God, if you ever want to look it up later. The Awe Factor of God, Francis Chan. And let's see if we've got it here. What, what, what you're seeing right now. First of all, this is the earth, okay? This is just, you're taking off from the earth from Southern California, and we're going we're gonna to rise up for a little bit here, okay? We're going to pull away from it. We're going to pull higher. Now, this is at about 10 kilometers. Like, if you climb Mount Everest, this is what you'd see. You'd see the curvature of the earth from that distance. Now, you're gonna, we're going to climb up even higher. This is at 100 kilometers, and you're a fourth of the way to the space station now. This is what you'd see. If you get to this level, you're considered an astronaut. Just if you ever get there. Okay, now we're going 100,000 kilometers. 100,000 kilometers from the Earth. You're a fourth of the way to the moon. That's what the Earth would look like. Now we're going to pull away to a million kilometers. At a million kilometers, there's the moon. Okay, there's the moon. You can barely see the Earth. You're at a million kilometers now. You're past the past the moon, and uh, now we're going to go to 100 million kilometers. 100 million kilometers, you're still not to the sun. The sun's 93 million miles away, but now we're going to go to 10 trillion kilometers. Ten, there's the sun. Okay. You just passed the sun, now you would see all of the planets at 10 trillion kilometers. And now we're at 10 to the 15th power. That means 10 with 15 zeros. I don't know what that number is. 15 zeros, and the sun's just like a bright dot amidst other stars. And now we're going to 10 light years away. At 10 light years away, come on, let's go. Zoom, there you go. 10 light years away, now you just see the sun with like 11 other stars that are kind of its neighbors. You know, that, 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 that's our sun. And now we're going to go 1,000 light years away. At a thousand light years away, you, you wouldn't even see our sun anymore. These are just a bunch of stars close to it in this cluster inside the Milky Way. Now we're going to zoom out even further, and that's the Milky Way we live in. See that cluster of stars? Those are about a hundred thousand stars that are closest to our sun. You can't see our sun anymore at this point. Now this is our Milky Way galaxy, and forget about the Earth. Okay, there's our Milky Way galaxy that we live in, um, and we're just buried in there somewhere. And we're going to pull out even further, and you'll see that our galaxy is actually, it's, it's a big galaxy, and, uh, 
and all those other things you're seeing now are galaxies. And we're going to pull away 10 million light years now. His next scene is 10 million light years. Those are all galaxies you see amidst our Milky Way, several hundred galaxies. Now we're going to go 100 million light years away. This is the last one. We're going to zoom out to 100 million light years. Those are all clusters of galaxies. Galaxies and clusters of galaxies. You won't even see our Milky Way galaxy anymore amidst that. We don't have telescopes that go beyond that little sphere there. Hard to see something like that and think grandiose thoughts of yourself, isn't it? <laughs> can make you feel kind of small, but here's the part I love. According to David, the very God who created all that we just looked at in this video, and more than that, by his word, is mindful of you, and he cares for you. He's mindful of you and he cares for you. And I just thought this morning as I prayed and then this week as this morning approached, uh, God, what do you want the people here today to know? I mean, you're all coming from different places in life. Your stories are all different and you've gathered here this morning. And I want you to know that that God, that God is mindful of you and he cares for you. See, I believe when you truly grasp that, there's nothing that can happen apart from just being humbled by it. And I, and I want to just be careful here. I'm, I'm not talking about we need to beat ourselves up and think we're garbage. That's, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about having a, an accurate view of who we are and who our God is. I love uh, the great prince of preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, once said of humility. He said that humility is to make a right estimate of self. That's all that it is, is to make a right estimate of who we are. Not a lowly one. Not to beat yourself up. Not to be consumed with thoughts that can easily lead towards self-pity. But instead to have a biblically accurate way of thinking about yourself as it relates to who you are and who your God is. You know, Facebook is sure an interesting little thing, isn't it? But uh, I've, you see some good stuff and some other stuff and stuff you wish you never saw in the first place. And, but sometimes some really good stuff is shared by friends. And I have a friend who is a pastor. Some of you may know him by the name of Brian Sheely. And one day I saw his post. In fact, I was here one day when he preached at some event in the Family Life Center. He just posted on Facebook my healthy self-image, and I want you to hear the whole thing, not just the first part here. Listen to the whole thing. My healthy self-image. I am a vile, wretched, wicked sinner with a corrupt heart who deserves hell. Yet by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ, have been forgiven, declared to be righteous, adopted into God's family, has received a new heart and is slowly being changed into someone who by the power of the Spirit can to some degree love God and act loving towards people, all the while hoping for heaven where I'll see Christ and be perfectly like him. To see our, ourselves biblically apart from the work that God's done in our life. 
we're nothing beautiful or impressive, are we? But to God be the glory as he saves us and he does this work in our life in order that Christ might be glorified. And it's a beautiful thing to behold when you meet a believer who understands this sort of balance. How infinitely huge, incredible, magnificent, and large our God is, and yet that he is also mindful of and cares for you. Last Friday, uh, or just a couple days ago, I, I came out here for Jay Hardaway's memorial service. You know why I came out? I had only met Jay we pro four or five times. But you know, the first time I ever met him, he got in the car with some men and he drove out to the church I was at in Moraga. And those men picked up shovels and brooms and hedge clippers and paintbrushes and they helped pour as a labor of love work into that facility that we were using to lift up Jesus Christ. And so the first time I ever met that man, he was serving me, our church family, and the body of Christ. So any time after that, I'd come to a prayer event or something special that was at Valley. We'd see each other, and we'd run into each other, and, and we'd talk. It's like I barely knew the guy, but I, I loved him, and I loved what I did know about him. And so as I received the bulletin as I came in that day, I, I opened it, and I saw an assignment that he wrote during one of the Timothy classes, if I understand correctly, that he was in. And I want you to hear part of what he wrote in light of what I'm saying now and tell me you don't hear exactly the type of high view of God and being in awe of the fact that God could care for and love him. Listen, these are his words, and I just took little pieces from what he wrote. I thank you, O Lord, for you are great. Who can comprehend your awesomeness? If he was here today, I'd almost want to say, Jay, you sure you didn't grab some of this from Psalm 8? Because this is all sounding a lot like good stuff. The human mind cannot fathom your greatness. Before time existed, you did. And at its conclusion, you still will. You are the creator. I am the created. You know all about me, my successes, my opportunities and liabilities, my few strengths and my numerous weaknesses are all known to you. I stand in awe, speechless, looking upward. The magnitude of your splendor is inconceivable. I could spend a thousand generations speaking and still not begin to describe your brilliance. Yet you're an intentional God, caring enough for your creation. You see this balance going back and forth here. This is what we're seeing in Psalm 8. This is what we're seeing in a man who knew and loved and was passionate about Jesus Christ. Everything is provided by you. Yet with all you've given, you still take the time out to know me. To know me personally, not simply to know about me or know me. All-knowing everywhere and all-powerful you are. And yet in spite of all you do, despite the entire world's reliance on you, you take the time to hear me when I call. Not only do you hear me, you answer and treat me as a son. I praise you, for you are God. You know, uh, with the little bit that I do know about Jay, I've learned that he had a heart problem with his physical heart. But let me tell you, that was a pretty special heart in that man. And 
I would say if you want to have any type of heart that you're characterized by, let it be a servant's heart. And that's the type of heart that I saw in him, and I so respect and appreciate that. I believe he had a Psalm 8, 1 through 4 type of mindset and heart. I'm going to end this morning with just a couple of questions that I want you to ask yourself, or I'm about to round up. Don't get too excited. Lord only knows I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get there. As I mentioned earlier, do I live as if it's a wonder that God is mindful of me? Or on any given day, might it be more like, well, Lord, I've done this for you, and I've done that for you. Why? I don't understand why, and how could you... And I'm not saying things are always going to make sense because they're not. But this perspective that's in awe of the fact that such a magnificent God could be mindful of you. Or do you live as if you were the measure of all things? Have you truly wrapped your mind around the fact that the incomparably great creator God is mindful of you and sincerely cares for you? And are you living with that type of mindset today. I know many of you, but I don't know all of you, and I just want to say this, that the greatest way that he's ever shown his love and his care for you is that he was willing to step in and take your place, to pay a penalty that the Bible says you and I both deserved. And it's not because I'm any better than you or you're any better than me. We should forget comparing ourselves to, to other people and recognize the Bible says we've all messed up. Bible calls it sin. We've fallen short of the glory of God and that there's a penalty for that. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death and wages are something that we earn. Our sin, the messed up things everybody in this room has done has separated us from God. But by the grace of God, the message doesn't end there, right? God's word tells us in Romans 5 that God demonstrated his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, while you were still messed up and unimpressive, Jesus Christ died for you, and he did that in order that he might step in and pay the penalty for the sins that you have committed. You see, only Jesus could do what you and I could ever do. We failed him many times. You may have failed him on the drive here this morning, but Jesus Christ lived 30-some years on this earth, and he never fell short of God's law. He kept God's law perfectly, and God has said he's willing to take not all the good things you've done, but he's willing to take the righteousness of his perfect son who has kept his law perfectly, and he's willing to tr uh, credit that to your account. If you would just by faith receive what he's done for you. And I'm going to tell you something. This might be a message you've heard many times before. I heard the gospel preached many times before I ever recognized how desperately I needed Jesus, and I stopped trusting in my own being a good guy and trying to do the religious activities that I thought I was involved in at the time. Know that for this to be real, that it's got to be personal. He's not just a Savior who died on the cross, but I need him as my Savior. He died on the cross not just for the sins of the world, but for my sins. And it's me who needed forgiveness. Jesus, would you forgive me? And I want to receive that gift and have eternal life with you. And not only eternal life, but he wants to be involved in you in the here and now. He wants to walk with you today. Some of you came here today and you've forgotten that you matter to him. You might know or be able to explain how enormous he is, but you've forgotten that he cares for you. And I want to tell you, he cares for you. 
hear those words this morning and just go back to this passage tonight or in the week to come and try to, with God's help, cultivate this mindset that sees God as transcendent and lifted high and exalted and yet at the same time near to you, caring for you and loving you. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. What a privilege it is to be able to say we know you. What a privilege to be able to remember Jesus in communion just moments ago knowing that the God-man stepped out of eternity as it were and he was willing to endure life in this messed up world and to be nailed to a cross, to be beaten, to be spat upon, and to be ridiculed, to pay the penalty that we deserve for our sin. God, may we never forget what Jesus has done for us. Never forget, and God, may this be a fresh reminder to all of us today of how incredible you are and that you also love and care for us. In Jesus' name.